0: What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Xavier with Protest Coverage, and we're excited to introduce Episode 2 of the Protest Coverage podcast, Shavana and Hawk Newsom, Part 1. That's right, everyone. There was just too much important detail discussed in our two-and-a-half-hour interview with the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Greater New York that we've decided to break it into three parts. In Part 1, we discuss how everything Shivana does is intentional from digging into NYPD financials to fashion and the use and pronunciation of her first name, why Hawk chooses Fox News to spread his message, and why he believes NYPD officers deserve health care. The brother and sister explain the origins of their organization and their mission, diving into hot topics from the Democratic Party and how they should re-strategize to the specific parts in the NYPD budget they feel should be defunded. All that and more coming up right now on Episode 2, The Newsom's. Part 1. Okay, so it's Kevin Xavier alongside Thomas Eller, managing editor for the protest coverage podcast, and our two guests if they could introduce
1: themselves.
2: Hi, I'm Javonna Newsom, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Greater New York.
1: I'm Hawk Newsom, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Greater New York. And just so you know my voice, I'm Tom. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. Okay, obviously you've
0: spent a lot of time doing interviews on Fox News of late. Why is that
1: outlet a good one to spread your message? I like view going on Fox News as a sparring match, right? It's kind of like a verbal intercourse with our enemies, with those that are diametrically opposed to our arguments. I don't go on Fox News to win any of their fans. It is not my job to convince racist white people that racism exists. But I do go on there to challenge their logic, right? And if their logic isn't sound and they come out looking like fools and, um, a lot of people don't realize that I have a law degree, you know, especially them. They take that for granted. They see me as a 6'5", 300-pound angry black man. So when I come and I challenge them, they're often offset and they end up looking like, looking foolish. It's, it's about exposing them. It's not about giving fascists a platform. It's about challenging flat fascism Right in their grills and letting them know exactly where we stand. And at the same time, a lot of members of the community, a lot of uh, black people, a lot of allies want to see these people put in their place, want to see them exposed for the hypocrites they are. So um, I go there to fight, and, and I think a lot of our people get enjoyment out of it. And, you know, naturally, they use what we say for clickbait. If I want to give them that type of answer, I'll give it. But if they're trying to provoke me into saying something that I don't want to say, just so they can use it as clickbait, I'll go around the question and answer the questions that we need answered for this cause. Like when you're asking me about, you know, looting, I want to talk to you about Brianna Taylor. When you're asking me about black people with guns being violent, I want to talk to you about the white people who go to state legislative houses with guns. I, I want to draw out that hypocrisy and put it right in their faces. Do you, because you
3: you kind of mentioned before you started that you kind of have that image where they underestimate you because they don't know you have a law degree. Um, you know, Shivani, you the same. Like You guys both have an, an image that you kind of cultivate of being like, I guess very cool, you know, like a lot of aviators, like (laughs) Hawk, you're a big big cigar guy. And I think that kind of uh, leads to that discrepancy where you mentioned like sometimes you'll show up in a suit and then they don't expect you to do that. Do you feel like that's like an intentional move on your part?
2: Well, everything I do now is pretty intentional, even by the use of my first... God-given parents' birth name, Shivana Being Black in America with names like mine, it was very hard to seek employment, even though I had attended schools such as Howard University and Fordham University. Um, I've been an entrepreneur since I was about 23 years old. Worked on presidential inaugural committees. But it always felt like I had to use my middle name, like C. Renee or Bonnie, or to get respect in a room I had to wear Ann Taylor, or I had mm-hmm. to dress um, like a financier. But now it's to the point where, no, this is about representation. This is about me not changing who I am as a person. I'm happy that everyone thinks it's cool, but I think it's about being my authentic self while speaking truth to power. So I actually, it's very intentional that I I wear cool kicks and that I wear sunglasses. And I want you to pronounce all the syllables in my seven letter first name. And I expect you to get it right. And that's just about reclaiming my black power. (laughs)
1: I think you are hilarious (laughs) and I love you for (laughs) it. And another part is what we bring to activism kind of opens the door for other people, right? A lot of people look at activists and they're like, okay, I got to wear combat boots and all black. I got to be a little bit dusty. Nah, no, that's not what this is. If you like cool clothes, right? If if you just like designer clothes, okay, I like nice shades. So I'm going to wear a pair of Versace shades because I like it, you know? And what people see who, like black people who are, I hate the term, but like upwardly mobile, right? Mm -hmm. Or money black people. Those people could look at us and say, you know, they kind of dress like we dress. Relatability. It's relatable to so many different people. And, And if I'm rocking sweatsuits, dudes from the hood who's standing on a the corner they won't listen to me if i'm in a the suit they think i'm a politician or i'm trying to sell them something to take advantage of them if you come through in a sweatsuit with some yeezys you know he's kind of fresh you know he looked like one of us and you ride up bumping that new Nas or bumping that right. new roddy rich mm-hmm. in the big truck it's like wow like like this is actually cool you know what i mean like it's 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 cool to the folks and it's not it's not um, about intentionally being cool. It's just we are naturally cool. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it's funny because that, um, right to me, <laughs> that
3: actually speaks a little bit, I think, to one of the differences between this civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights movement, where if you look at those pictures, it's like they're, they're trying to put on a very dignified kind of look to, to impress upon the people they're trying to you know, appeal to. Whereas now today, you look at pictures and everyone is, you know, they're wearing bandanas, they're wearing, you know, um, like hard hats sometimes. They're wearing just clothes that are all so different. Watching the movement evolve from where it started, and obviously you guys have been involved in this for so long. I mean, we're around a kitchen table right now, and you all—I believe you said you had started this around a kitchen table—and yeah. the. The phrase was like, I, I ain't voting until Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like the movement, the current state of it is today?
2: Um, well, I feel like you said a lot. And it's a <laughs> that's lot that's that's that I, yeah, I, I, I will love to address. First, I like to say that Malcolm uh, Malcolm X and Warren Luther King, I thought they were very spiffy dressers. I mm-hmm. thought they yeah. were very cool. But then it goes into the reason, um, how do I say this? Uh, let's say Eurocentric culture. Women on the front lines back then were trying to show the oppressors that, hey, we are worthy of your respect. Black people have this way of putting on, as we call it, our Sunday best, as you would never see a Black child, or especially a Black young woman, with her hair out of place. Because that's once we were allegedly free, clearly we're not. I don't celebrate Independence Day. We thought that we had to dress like our oppressors. We thought maybe if we straightened our hair and we dressed like them and we put on our very best, that they'd treat us with the respect that we deserve as a human being living on this planet. So I think that was a little bit of the way Way they dress. As of right now, I think the diversity that you see in marches just reflective of clothes where you see people in high fashion, people have like this neo soul Afro chic centric mm-hmm. thing happening. I think it shows the galvanizing of a world. I think it shows a mobilization of the people. There's no cookie cutter image of someone who's standing up to say that Jacob Blake should not have been shot or George Floyd should not have been murdered. It's, it does, it doesn't look like something. It's all people who are human and who have eyes and ears and the ability to retain information are standing out there to say that this injustice is wrong in this new civil rights movement. We're not taking no for an answer.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about how BLM greater NY came to be? Obviously, We know the story but it's a new audience and they may not have heard it to this point
1: well i keep it 100 with you right black lives matter needed a real presence in new york there was an organization called blm nyc that was a twitter handle and an account on social media you looked at the, the marches and things that were being done, and the responses to police acts of police aggression around the city, and there was no BLM NYC presence. Right? What time period are you
3: talking this about? This was
1: 2016, Okay. and um, it was a very unique time for me because um, it was a transitional time. I was entering into therapy, I was recently sober. Right? I'm like four and a half years sober. And it was a time of transition. And I started looking at the activism landscape. And you had political activists, and you had very street, I don't want to talk to the media, I don't want to deal with anybody type activists. And there was nobody who was standing in the middle who could navigate the politics of it and still be radical and aggressive. And in that space, we created Black Lives Matter Greater New York, you know, at our mother's kitchen table. And we started an initiative called Black Lives Matter, called I Ain't Voting Until Black Lives Matter. Now, the thing was, we were ostracized by people in the movement. How dare you say that Hillary Clinton is just as bad as Donald Trump? We were Trump?
2: counter-protested.
1: Yeah, we were counter-protested by Samalise Lopez and her husband and people who are now members of DSA. Right. Like like people who are now in groups that challenge the democratic structure were protesting us in 2016 when we were calling out the same things. Why? Because it wasn't trendy. But just like the clothes, just like the fashion, just like Warriors in the Garden, just like the Breathe campaign. Right. We dictate the fucking fashion. We dictate the fucking message. Because we are in the streets and we see how things are shaking down and we are in touch with our people and we know what they feel. So we are going to bring that with our platform and our ability to generate media. We're going to bring that to the masses. And now, what do you have now? You have burning people like, "Uh, I'm not thrilled about this election. Screw the Democratic Party. You have people in the streets saying, Joe Biden had better step up and give us something we could vote on or we're going to sit this out. That was us four years ago, right? TMZ, Hollywood, Tonight, CNN, Fox News. It was us. NAACP came for us. Old black activists came. Everybody was so mad at us for telling the truth. And that was the Democratic Party ain't shit. And they don't care about us, right? Which is the truth. And until they show us other, otherwise these are facts, now it's just more people who think like us now. And it's really problematic. Because back then, America needed the lesson that is Donald Trump. America needed Donald Trump in office so they could come face to face with the racism in this country. But now, I don't think we can take four more years of Donald Trump, realistically. But the Democrats aren't doing anything to stop this. They're just saying go out and vote because Donald Trump is the devil. That's not enough. Have Kamala and Joe Biden really went out to Wisconsin to sit with Jacob Blake's family? Like, like, come on, we need more.
2: Uh, and I think person. that um It's funny, I was having this conversation a lot since Kamala's announcement was made, like my comments that New York Times did, it made it to CNN, it made it to the Wall Street Journal, and then all the other publication things. And I feel that it goes back to the Obama era. Remember how inspired people were to register to vote? That time has changed. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We have an evil, racist, fascist sitting at the head of our government. And as much as Donald Trump needs to go, and we have led the fight in that from his inauguration to the Impeach Trump Now campaign before Congress would even move their feet on impeaching him. But I I think that people shouldn't sell themselves short, that America is still a democracy. And when we elect someone, they're supposed to represent our ideals, our values and our belief and do what's in the best interest of our nation. And I've received a lot of backlash. People are saying, wait, four years, we'll have a presidential candidate. No, I think that we are a smart people. I think that we have worked with democracy in some form for a very long time and we can get Donald Trump out of office and still have a president, a vice president, a new administration that is going to be progressive, that is going to promise people adequate health care, that is going to ensure that black men and women are no longer murdered and beat on the street. We can have accountability. We can have justice and we can have what this organization has always fought for black liberation under an administration.
3: How do you... Balance. I guess this is something that I've been thinking about as I watch the DNC and the RNC, is how do you balance fighting for those progressive ideals to energize the progressive base while also showing that the Democratic Party is a big tent that can encompass everyone from Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie, you know, AOC, and John Kasich, so that it seems like a less scary place for someone like, say, my mom who finds the idea of defunding the police kind of scary.
2: As someone who's ran on a Democratic Party ticket, I would be selling the people who follow me, the people who believe in me, and just the everyday American person and saying that, unfortunately, the Democratic Party profits and they retain power by our poverty. Now, to address defunding the police department, police unions which we need to dismantle. Because when we think about the history of policing when it was called the slave patrol. So it's never going to quite work well with people who have melanin, people who look like me, people who are ancestors and descent who are sorry, who are descendants of slaves. I think that the police unions and police departments do a very good media job. They're very media savvy. They want your mother to be afraid. Donald Trump's most recent campaign was about not having low-income people live in the suburbs. It keeps people feeling safe in the suburbs because they highlight how much stuff is happening in lower-income areas. I just think that the Democratic Party, with all their resources, they need to dispel the myths. They need to get on message. They need to make things that just want to any of your viewers. I'm sure most of the people who follow you. What defunding the police means is more social programs. It means taking guns out of our schools. It means the NYPD not having an $11 billion budget when a school four blocks from here does not have books. That's what defunding the police department means. And we were just on the phone with a data guy. And I don't want to misquote the data, but it's too many officers for the amount of people they're policing. Yeah,
1: officers don't respond to violent crimes as much as you think. So, in order for every police officer to uh, make a crime an arrest for like a violent crime, it would be like one arrest every 429 days. It's some wild, ridiculous numbers, and we're gonna produce those numbers for you. But I like to spoon feed people things. Crime is caused for particular reasons. Right. Desperation, starvation, housing insecurity and these reasons. Right. So if you take the money from the police and invest it in people so that they can be employable, so that they can have the mental health that they need, so that they can have housing, so that they can have better education, social programs that will eliminate the crime you feel like you need these police officers to protect you from. It's very, very simple. If you invest that money in the people, the people will not commit
3: crimes. I actually, since we mentioned the budget, I've been kind of looking at their budget and what everything kind of goes to because we've all been looking at you know the city council vote that was supposed to have shifted a billion dollars and people have had um, certainly some issues with how that was done. Those are
2: accounting tricks. So someone who was formerly in finance, <laughs> that was just someone who was really well with the budget sheet. The yeah. NYPD has not been defunded. And going back to elections, Trump didn't want it. And now we have, we have new candidates that we're all united behind who do not want to defund the police as well.
3: Where would you like <laughs> to see the budget be reduced?
2: First of all, overtime pay. Then when we talk about ending qualified immunity, how much of the city's budget goes to these officers? Look at the devil himself, Pat Lynch. Um, I think his son has about 31 allegations. Who knows how much the city has spent paying these out? And when you look at zip codes where people are impoverished, when you look at the precincts in those communities, you'll see the history of police brutality. You'll see it alive and well and see how much is being spent in small precincts that govern and have authority over a small area are paying quarter of a million to a million dollars so that's number one ending qualified immunity will stop that having kids in our school to further the prison school of prison pipeline when we don't have enough social workers and we don't have enough mental health services that's another giving money to instead of policing and we need to downsize the amount of police we currently have before we get to this place where we no longer have policing we understand it's going to take time We understand the communities are going to have to change. It's going to be generational changes. It's going to be better education. It's going to be higher paying jobs. These are, This is what's to come. But spending that money in the community on gun violence interrupters, things like Save Our Streets, Street Corner Resources, people who have experience and have proven stats that they would reduce crime more than police are just a few of the ways. Now, we can also take that and put in affordable housing, which really wouldn't be that much money because most people's problems, which I've polled and walked the streets of one of the nation's poorest urban congressional districts, is people's biggest issue is where they're going to live. So instead of funding and hiring and graduating more police officers, why don't we build some sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly housing?
3: Yeah, you identified overtime. And I wanted to ask you all about pensions for police are a significant portion of their budget. Because I believe it's something like 50% of your average salary over the last couple of years. And they do take into account overtime, which is fairly rare among government jobs. And then plus like a $12,000 Additional fund on top of that. And that plus they have full benefits like healthcare and everything. And obviously, being a police officer is a dangerous job. So that's why I'm, I'm curious about do you see these as like necessary given the nature of the job or are they.
2: More, you want me to get slaughtered think, by my well, no. union you friend. I, I, <laughs> you I, just I, want I, me to I, get annihilated. I, I, I got this. I got this. I
1: got, that's I where tags it. I, tacks jump, tacks I <laughs> jump right in front of these bullets. You know, even these pigs. Deserve health care. Everybody deserves health care. But when it comes to their pensions, we need to start attacking their pensions. How do we do this? We drew about 25,000 people in Times Square when we announced our, uh, what was it, the Black Act. Yeah. 24 pieces of legislation at, or legislative recommendations that was created in this in this crib, in our little honeycomb hot out, right? Like, like, And we locked ourselves in, bought a bunch of pizza, a bunch of wine, and we got busy, right? And I'm still sober, by the way. But, um, (laughs) but, But the most important bill for me in that whole agenda is the Blue Wall Bill, which says if an officer falsifies a statement and it's proven... They will face one to three years in jail and lose their pension. Now, we know that the police department has a stricter no snitch policy than the Mafia, the Bloods, the Crips, and the Trinitarios put together. They are gangster with their shit. They do not snitch. Cops who snitch on each other are isolated and left out to dry. So, we have to attack that blue wall. And if you do that, and if you penalize and punish these cops, a cop is left with a very harsh decision. Okay, I'm going lie, to lie, lie for you and cover for you because you broke the law and beat somebody up. Or I'm going to protect my family. I'm going to protect my pension, my kids' college tuition, and my mortgage. Now we have a real decision to make. And what you'll see is police turning on other police officers. It's kind of like, when I go on Fox, right? Sometimes I'll use Fox to light a fire under the Democrats. You understand? And vice versa. Like the problem is, I understand that we are all angry, and we are all passionate, and we want to see change, but stratagem is key. The two books that I've read the most in my life are the Bible Thank God for that. And Sun Tzu's art of war. Right? There's an art to this. Like every step has to be calculated. Even the crazy. Even you, you have to understand that you are going to lose your temper. Right? But you have to understand that that's necessary. And when it's needed, you have to understand that the destruction of property is sometimes necessary. Right? I'm not encouraging people to do this. But what I'm doing is I'm stating facts, like nobody had to tell folks in Kenosha to go out and burn down the Department of Probations. That's something they felt in their heart and they took to the streets and did. Now, what I have to do is draw your attention to the last five years and how much legislation has been passed. Now, I want you to look at post George Floyd's murder how much legislation has been passed. What's the difference? There's been so much happening, so much change in the world in the last two, three months, right? More so than the last two, three years. Why is that? Because property was being destroyed. Commerce was being interrupted. So now it's time to to calm these folks down, right? What do we do to calm them down? Because they're disrupting the flow of America's Business. I know it's a lot. I know I jump around, but the bottom line is when you disrupt business in America America responds America is not a Lean on me hug you kiss you type of place. That is not our form of diplomacy Our form of diplomacy is usually violence or the threat of violence. Okay? All of this is circular cop kills somebody People take to the streets, property is destroyed, uh, or there's mass protests, and things die down, and then it all happens again,
2: right? I think that's why this time is different. I think that they thought, because uh, we were on the ground when, um, when I I choose to forget his name. The murder of George Floyd uh, was arrested. The first show his first, the first arrest was made, and everyone kept screaming, "One down, three more to go." They thought that when they passed beyond the Taylor's law, without arresting the officers who murdered her. People would stop we see that hasn't and what i think when they started passing legislation they thought oh wow you guys are going to be reasonable you're going to take this and go sit down until another injustice happens but i think that makes this movement because it's truly a movement so special and what makes it so revolutionary is people said wait if we take to the streets and there's unrest and we can get officers arrested almost instantly we see how fast things are happening what about mass incarceration what about women's reproductive rights what about housing injustice? what about canceling rent and i don't think that this government was prepared for the activists i don't think they were prepared for generation z millennials and generation x and everyone else who is out there on the front lines we are not complacent you cannot placate us with one or two laws that should have been passed 20 years ago. And actually, choco vans have been banned in police handbooks for a very long time. So that's not a win. So I think that they were unprepared for this. Very much so. And I think that right now, the power is truly in the hands of the people. When you look at d who you guys had interviewed on the show, when has the NYPD ever backed down from anything? Hmm. Ever. And Pat Lynch, Satan, who I like to refer to him as, Satan um, even conceded. He waved a white flag in defeat. So if anything, I think that everyone on the ground, not only here in New York City, but around however large your, your far larger audiences around the world know to keep going. Like, they gave us an inch. Hmm. Now it's time to take the mile. Now it's time to win this marathon once and for all. So, our generations to come will not be dealing with this problem. I don't want to be 85 and I'm mentoring people how to spark a new revolution. I'm like, my job well done and complete would be to end these woes before people my age leave this earth, that we don't straddle other generations with systemic oppression, with uh, the wealth disparity, with the inadequacies in healthcare, with actually not even having universal healthcare in an industrialized late nation. As we see how quickly the legislation has been passed, there's no reason why we shouldn't have reparations. There's no reason why we shouldn't have all the things that we need as a society. And I don't think that we're gonna give up. I don't think this movement's gonna stop until we receive our demands.
3: Uh, Pat Lynch. Just as a note for anyone who's not familiar, <laughs> is the head of the Police Benevolence Association, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is the, one of the largest unions, police unions in the
0: world.
2: Well, and they just they endorse endorse Donald, Donald Trump, Trump. Trump.
1: <laughs> no,
0: and which we, they said they'd never done. Before. And we've attended a few protests and counter-protests on this very topic over the last few days. So we'll we'll have more for the audience on that. Thank you so much for listening. Wow, that was fun just to listen back. Hawk and Shavana covered a variety of topics, and we touch on many more next Tuesday in Part 2 of the news. In our second installment with the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Greater New York, we discussed their affiliation with BLM Global, or lack thereof, and why that relationship is contentious. The pair explained why they feel their organization is all-encompassing for the people how they plan to attack certain legislation to bring justice, like repealing qualified immunity for one example. Tom and I want to remind you all that protest coverage is a team effort with a staff of 12 in addition to other collaborators. Our collective mission is to get you the most accurate information while capturing the look, sound, and feel of being at a protest. Every team member and collaborator is vital to that mission please refer to the show notes so that you can check out their incredible work. And we look forward to bringing more of their voices to you beginning next week. Again, thank you all for listening. I'm Kevin Xavier. And if we don't see you in the streets, we'll see you next week right here on the Protest Coverage Podcast.